Hello, and welcome to the Carl Road Baptist Church podcast. Be sure to listen all the way through to the end of the episode for additional info on where to find more resources for past sermons, as well as how to watch us live each Sunday if you can't join us in person at our Columbus, Ohio location. Let's prepare to hear this week's sermon and listen for what God is saying to you and what he wants to do in your life. It was July 1789 in Paris, France. There'd been years of turmoil, bad crops, oppressive taxes for the working class people while the nobility uh, in France had had lavish parties. Uh, The poor were barely surviving and getting taxed on just about everything. There was a man named Jean-Paul Marat, uh, I think I have a picture of him, who started this uh, social media platform called a newspaper. Uh, it was, the newspaper was called Title of the People, and it went viral using fear and outrage to stir people up. I'm so glad we've moved on from fear and outrage in our social media uh, as a civilization. Uh, and he would sug- had suggestions on how to make things better like this. Five or six hundred heads cut off would have assured your repose, freedom, and happiness. Eventually, uh, the the National Assembly was formed, which was France's first shot at a government of the people seeking to pursue positive change. However, change was slow, and so working-class people at one point stormed a military hospital and stole all the weapons. This is pretty smart planning by the government. Uh, There was no (laughs) gunpowder. Gunpowder and weapons in separate places. Uh, Sounds smart. And so then they went to a prison called the Bastille and demanded that the governor of Bastille, the Marquis de Lunay, hand over the gunpowder for their newly stolen weapons so that they could take matters into their own hands. Uh, The Marquis de Lunay did not hand over the the gunpowder, and so they stormed the Bastille, killing many, including de Lunay, and cutting off his head. They got the gunpowder and they began marching through the streets of Paris with the Marquis de Lunay's head on a pole. The mob reported back, got back to the National Assembly, which is again, there was the governing body that was trying to bring about what? Justice and equality. And there was this moment that most historians say determined the nature and the character of the French Revolution for decades. Would the National Assembly condone the violence or celebrate it? Deluni's head was on a pole. Would the governing body condemn or condone this act of violence? Well, if you know your history, you can probably... Uh, you, or you could just guess, uh, based on uh, Jean-Paul Marat's advice, they, were, they got drunk on violence, and putting heads on poles became one of the trademarks of the French Revolution. And there were a lot of heads rolling around because of a new invention called the guillotine. France entered what historians called the Reign of Terror. And when you look at revolutions throughout human history, there is almost always a decisive act of violence. There's often many more acts of violence after that one decisive one, but there's this one decisive act of violence. And the murder of the Marquis de Delaunay was the decisive act of violence for the French Revolution. 
And even Thomas Jefferson uh, from our own revolution here in the United States, uh, he, he summarized it like this. The tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. It is its natural manure. Well, I go into all this revolution talk because it is what our sermon text is about today. The story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 is loaded with revolutionary imagery and language. If you grew up in church like me, this story is, is fun and quaint. It works great, you know, on the flannel graph. Uh, people were hearing the good news and getting food. And, and that is true. It's not untrue. But it's just not the full story. The first thing uh, that we should point out that we've said pretty much every week in this journey through Mark uh, is that Mark is showing us who Jesus is. And here in the first half, he's, he's showing us that Jesus is the king with all authority. And so in this story, Mark is not primarily showing us just the miracle of making food multiply, but showing how people are beginning to respond to Jesus and this authority that is beginning to, uh, word of his authority that's beginning to spread. And Mark is beginning to unpack the nature and character of King Jesus's revolution. Whenever there is an established order, an established government or ruler or king, and another person or group says, no, I am a ruler, that is a revolution. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's going around as the king, as the Messiah, while there are remaining power, there are established power structures. And so this is Jesus as a revolution. But his revolution is like no other revolution the world has ever seen. And so the two questions I want to look at as we go through this text are this. What is the nature of Jesus's revolution? And what is it like to be a part of Jesus's revolution? If you identify as a disciple of Jesus, what is it, what is it like to be a committed member of his revolution, his new world order that he has come to establish on the earth? And it's a revolution that continues to this day. It's a revolution that you and I can participate in. First, a little historical context, Israel, uh, where G Jesus is doing ministry right here, is under Roman occupation, which was incredibly oppressive. A lot of historians would estimate the, the tax uh, from the Romans onto the Jews being as high as 90%. Like at that rate, you, you'd have to imagine like uh, family land that had been in the family for generations having to be sold to pay these disruptive tax bills. And then let's look at what happens right before the feeding of the 5,000 in verse 20, 27. So immediately he, Herod, sent an executioner with orders to bring John the Baptist's head. The man went and beheaded John in the prison and brought his head back on a platter. So John the Baptist, a controversial J Jewish teacher, was unjustly imprisoned and then beheaded by a Roman ruler for a party favor because the ruler's stepdaughter did an erotic dance. We talked about that last week, don't have time. But it was senseless evil. So it's not a stretch of the imagination that Israel is getting more and more angry. All this oppression, all this senseless evil is starting to build up. And for years, on top of that, for years, Israel has been reading the Old Testament, interpreting these prophecies about the Messiah through a political lens, through uh, the, the lens that would call, see the Messiah coming to overthrow Roman oppression. 
And so now that Jesus is on the scene, fulfilling prophecies, doing incredible acts of power, healing the blind, lame, raising the dead, it's not hard to imagine that people are thinking, this is it. The revolution is beginning. Look at verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come away with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So Jesus just got the devastating news that his cousin, John the Baptist, was beheaded in a terrible, senseless way. At the same time, Jesus' disciples are returning from uh, an intense, busy season of ministry where he had sent them out for the first time. They got to do a lot of exciting things. And his next move is to retreat, to get away and rest. Wish I could spend a whole sermon on this, but let the hearer understand. In response to sadness, in response to busy seasons of doing things for God, Jesus's rhythm outside of this, all over the gospels is to retreat, to have seasons of engaging and ministry and doing things and seasons of uh, withdrawing and resting and emoting, letting our souls catch up with our body, having the space to understand what it is we're feeling, to hold our broken hearts before the God who can comfort them. That's all we can say about that. Now we get to the revolution language. When it says many were coming and going, most commentators see this as an idiom, as language that would have been used to describe the hubbub of revolutionary activity. It's, it's unusual language, and it's kind of got this like suspicious clandestine movement afoot kind of thing. And so Jesus and the disciples go away to a desolate place. Historically, but even that's a little tricky, a little nuanced, because historically and geographically, the remote regions of Galilee, if you look at extra biblical history, were the place where revolutionary, revolutionaries have been hide, had been hiding out and gaining strength for generations. Before the Romans, there were other oppressors in Israel's history, other revolutions, other revolts that happened uh, even before the Romans. And you can look through history and see revolutions getting their start in these desolate places around Galilee. Also, interesting enough, most other places in Mark's gospel, he often uses a a word that we translate crowd that is just very bread and butter, boilerplate, just means a mass of people, men, women, children, people in general, a large, large number of them. But in this passage, the Greek word is actually different. Uh, that has, uh, it can be translated with more specificity to mean men. So it seems like Mark is intentionally inferring that this crowd was understood as predominantly or exclusively male, masculine, which is, makes sense. And at the end, verse 44, it says the number of men was 5,000. And we don't need to, you know, hang our entire theology on this point necessarily, because it might be true that there were 5,000 men plus women and children, and so the miracle is even better than just feeding 5,000. It was more like 20,000. That could be true or whatever. But I think the text supports, uh, even suggests, that it was a group of 5,000 angry men. 5,000 angry men wanting revolution. They were the ones who were out and about 
angry about John the Baptist, angry about these oppressive taxes that they had been paying for years, angry about seeing their kids denied what they needed so that people like Herod could throw these gross parties. And so when they saw Jesus, who might be the Messiah, going to the desolate place where revolutions in the past had begun, it would make sense that they would drop everything and run there to be a part of overthrowing Rome and putting a new king in place. In John's gospel, he records this miracle as well. In John chapter six, it's even more clear. At the end of this miracle, John six fifteen, it says, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So there's tons of revolutionary imagery going on here. Uh, There's this sense of wanting Jesus to take over and become king. Next, we see the complex nature of Jesus's, uh, Jesus's revolution. Look at verse 34. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. So picture this, this mob of 5,000 angry men that are, just, that are just jonesing for a revolution. And Jesus uses the opportunity to compassionately teach them. He sees them as they are. Men who are hurt, men who are scared, men who feel helpless and lost. And he has compassion on them. And he teaches them. He gives them truth hands them, equips them with truth. Now to this day, there are revolutionaries gathering in remote places on our planet. What do we most often call them? Terrorists. And when a group of lost, angry men gather around a leader in a desert, what's typically the first thing that you might imagine them doing if they want to overthrow oppressive power? get some guns and and do target practice, do combat training. But here we see that Jesus's leadership in his revolution, it flows from compassion, that compassion is expressed, expressed in teaching the truth, teaching the good news of the kingdom of God coming to earth, which shows us that Jesus's revolution is not first and foremost about getting to work, It's about coming home to the reality of who he is and who we are and what we need. So often people come to Jesus all jacked up, wanting one thing. And this is the compassion of Jesus is that he flips the scripts and just blows up the reality, shifts their reality. You can come to Jesus because your finances are a wreck or whatever. And he flips the script like, no, the the money is just a symptom. The real issue is your soul that can't say no to things because you're looking for something else. And my last church, a guy got saved because he Googled church, looking for a church after being devastated by a breakup. And he came looking for comfort. But the teaching that, that morning happened to be on, it happened to be a call to action it, 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 around the question, what kind of person are you becoming? What is shaping your character? And he realized like, oh, the issue isn't this girl. The issue isn't this hurting heart. It's that my character is trash, that I'm not looking at a, a, anything respectable to shape who I'm becoming. And I need to look to Jesus. I need to be saved and taught how to live. 
That's what Jesus will do. You come to him for one thing and he flips the script with the good news. Look what happens next. Verse 35. By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said. It's already very late. So send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said, that would take more than a half year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? So here we, we begin to get a picture of what it's like to be a part of Jesus's revolution. The story is shifting from this crowd of angry men to now being about the disciples. And I just love that the disciples are worried about food. It makes me feel not so alone because I would, I would be worried about food myself if I were that. And you get a picture of Jesus who's so overwhelmed with love for this mob that he's just like in the zone. He's just teaching them, caring for them, entering into their chaos and, and, and serving them. And the sun's getting lower and lower in the sky. And the disciples are like, what's happening here? Because you remember, why did they leave in the first place? Because they didn't have time to eat. So they, they theoretically got into the boat hungry, went across the ocean or the Sea of Galilee hungry, got out and were ready to eat. And then there's this mob of people and like, oh, okay, Jesus is teaching now. I guess we're not going to eat now. I guess I'm just going to still be hungry. And, you know, I, I, I got to wonder, did they bring enough food for just 13? And they're like, Send these people away. I'm not going to share, you know, my peanut butter and jelly with these people. And you just got to love that Jesus says, you give them something to eat. This is, we got to pay attention to this. This is Jesus. This is Jesus. Scripture showing what it's like to be a part of Jesus's revolution. And because the disciples are flabbergasted. What? How in the world? We don't have enough money for that. That would take like 20 grand to, to, how are we going to do that? Jesus is inviting his disciples to follow him into this compassionate ministry for a lost and angry mob, which seems like something Jesus would do. But in that invitation, by the fact that Jesus is inviting them into this this compassionate ministry, they get overwhelmed and scared and they're a little bit hangry and they're confused. This shows us something important about what it means to follow Jesus in his revolution. It means we'll be invited into radical compassion for people and it will overwhelm us. It will make us flabbergasted. It'll it'll make us feel like there's what? There's just no way that I can do this. It will stretch us beyond what we think we can handle. And I think when you look at the scriptures, that is a normal experience for a disciple of Jesus. In fact, if you consider yourself a Jesus follower and you don't at least semi-occasionally feel a little bit overwhelmed as you try to follow him, a little bit flabbergasted at, well, how, how am I supposed to do this? Then we should probably ask some questions about the degree to which we're living the way of Jesus. We could talk about the LifeWise Project, you know, which is this new outreach program that we're doing that's kind of overwhelming. It's a huge lift that we're praying for God to provide for, or it could just be trying to learn to love your spouse the way Jesus does. Through a lot of pain and misunderstanding, past hurts that can happen in a marriage that will stretch you and break down many rigid, fearful parts of you. Maybe for you, it's loving your neighbors because you can't stand your neighbors. They're everything that you don't like about humanity. You can barely look at them. But then you see Jesus saying, love your neighbor as yourself. And you're like, there's no way. 
There's no way. They don't wake up till noon and they, you know, whatever. I, mean, I, I wouldn't even know how to talk to them or whatever. My point is to let scripture define normal for you. Following Jesus is not this uh, up and to the right kind of thing. Always neat and tidy, confident, in control kind of life that a lot of us expect. But instead, it's this thing that stretches us, that makes us need to trust Jesus, that makes us feel like children needing to be guided by a father. Verse 38, Jesus asked them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. I think this might be my favorite question from Jesus. I love the questions of Jesus. I love questions in general. Jesus asked the best ones. And this, I think this is my favorite because Jesus, you know, doesn't need to ask questions. When he's asking a question, he's teaching, which I've learned. I'm not very good at practicing it. Questions are the best way to teach. And so he's trying to reveal something to the person he's speaking to. And he says, how many loaves do you have? Why is he asking that question? What, what is he trying to get at or expose in the disciples? Well, the disciples are focused on what they do not have. And Jesus says, what do you? I ask them, what do you have? Go and see. Jesus responds to the flabbergastedness, the confusion with a simple question. What do you have? And then practically tells them, go, take inventory. Actually like see, write it down, put it on paper. When we are focused on what we don't have, we can't see what we do have most often. Part of following Jesus is cultivating a way of being, of relating to people, managing our money, all these things where we are present to reality. Uh, we, 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 are, we have an instinct to look at just what is. What are the facts of the situation? What are the givens of the situation? Where are we starting? And looking at those honestly, not shutting down options or discrediting resources prematurely. Because if we're honest, this is a silly question. Like, are they going to find $20,000 worth of food amongst this crowd? I don't need to go and see Jesus. I know it's not going to be enough. It doesn't make sense. But Jesus' revolution is based on him, who he is. And the experience of being a part of his revolution means that we are honest about what we do have. And we offer it up to the king. We offer it up to our rabbi. Because Jesus will use what little we have and when we offer what we have, he will do more through us than we ever thought possible. It shows us something significant about the way Jesus operates, or he chooses to operate, at least in this case, uh, that he starts with what the disciples do have. He could have made bread fall from heaven. He could have just supernaturally sustained people. Uh, he, he could have done all kinds of different things. But instead, he wanted his disciples to have this experience, this training, uh, this teaching through doing that is, that is true for all of us, that Jesus teaches us and grows us and stretches us through doing, through action, through participating in his revolution of compassion. And what we do, we join that by offering up to him what it is we do have, however small, however pathetic. Look at verse 39. Well, into verse 38. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Verse 39. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. 
So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to all the people. He also divided the two fish among them. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. Now bread is a very important part of the story. When we think of bread in our culture, you know, what do we think about? I think about carbs. You might think about gluten. You know, it's like we got all these like weird things with bread right now. But in in Jesus's day and age, bread was a symbol for life. So much of humanity's lived experience at this time in human history was about getting enough food. There was not a huge diet industry back in this day and age where people had to learn strategies for not to eat the just super abundance of food like we do now. Instead, bread was life. And here we see in Jesus's revolution that he has the words of life in his teaching. And then he does this miracle to feed their physical bodies with miraculously multiplied bread. In one of the great I am statements that uh, follows this miracle in John's, uh, John's gospel, we see it even more clearly. Look at John 6.35. It should be on the screen. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus' revolution is about satisfaction for our souls. When we think about angry, scared, hurting men wanting to overthrow Roman rule, oppression, see them as hungry souls, so people who came to Jesus hungry for justice, hungry for things to be made right. What is your soul hungry for? Can you identify with this crowd? Have you brought your hungers to Jesus? And Jesus offers his word, his word is true food and himself as the bread of life, the bread that will satisfy your soul's hunger and thirst. It's significant that Jesus does not criticize the mob. He doesn't rebuke them for being focused on politics when the real issue is something else or anything like that. Instead, he just compassionately teaches them and then literally feeds them. It's a beautiful image of the kingdom of God. We see three things that also flesh out Jesus's revolution. Order, satisfaction, and abundance. We see the order where the people are hearing truth, reality. They're being grounded in what is true. Instead of floating up with all these ideas and emotions about revolution and politics and Roman oppression, they're being grounded. And they're also sitting down in manageable groups, groups of 50s or 100s, which is military terminology, which again is contrasting Jesus's revolution. He doesn't put people into groups of 50s and 100s so they can go and attack things and so they can sit down and eat. It's a stark contrast to all other revolutions. And there's the image of satisfaction in Mark's language. Everyone was satisfied. And there's this abundance of 12 full baskets which has all kinds of cool references to the 12 tribes of Israel. We don't have time to go into, uh, but there's extra. There's extra left over when Jesus seeks to satisfy us. Order, satisfaction, and abundance. This is the nature of Jesus's revolution. It's based on the very character of the God of the universe. Now, Jesus and his disciples uh, serve people uh, in 
in this revolution and we see uh, what it means to be a part of it, which is that it, being a part of it is a grace. It's a way we experience grace. Uh, going to work with Jesus is one of the best ways to experience grace. We see them being brought into compassion despite their unbelief, their lack of confidence in Jesus, flabbergasted and confused. This is like having your kids help with a project around the house. Saturdays at our house, we call them GSD days, get stuff done days. And yesterday we were painting our chicken coop. This is a, this, this is a picture from yesterday. And uh, yeah, the, the, that was the crew painting the coop. Uh, they, and they helped, you know, in, in the best way they possibly could. It was incredibly cute and incredibly messy. I think I have a bonus pictures. This is me just wanting to show pictures of my kids. <laughs> they were so cute. And it was also so stressful and crazy or whatever. But the coop is white now. Let the record show. But I could have put a show on and just had them go watch a show and painted the coop quietly and efficiently by myself. Uh, but I want to see my kids learn and develop skills and have the confidence to try new things and mess up. I'd rather bring, bring them out and join me in the work because I love them. And it's, and it's a grace to involve them in the work. To be clear, we are all the kids in this. Like I know I'm like kind of God in this example or whatever, but they, they, this is why I love bringing my kids to work because it gives me an image of the incredible love I feel for them as they make a mess and make the work hard. It's how I think God feels about me most often. Jesus looks at you and me in grace and says, come follow me. Come be a part of my work. He doesn't save us and then just put a show on and tell us to get out of the way until it's all done. He says, I will make you fishers of men. This is discipleship, being with Jesus, depending on him, joining him in the work. And in doing that, we become like him. And his compassion and his courage and his faith and his generosity to lost people. We follow Jesus deeper into an experience of being a child of God. Jesus was the son of God, loving people out of the overflowing abundance of the love he experienced from God the Father. The point of application, I've, I've been fascinated by the classic virtues. They kind of feel like they fell out of favor or whatever, but they're these classic virtues and vices that you can trace throughout a lot of Western history, all the way uh, from Aristotle and to some of the desert fathers in the early church. And I stumbled across this very interesting one that's always hard for me to say, pusillanimity. I'd never heard of this term before, but it's so fascinating and doesn't get talked about a lot. It means smallness of soul. According to 13th century theologian Thomas Aquinas, this vice plays out in people when they shrink back from all that God has called them to be. When the difficulty of stretching ourselves uh, to do the things God has called us to do, we, we cringe and say, I can't do it. And the, the sneaky of, sneakiness of this vice is that it can often hide under some kind of false humility or reasonable uh, caution or, you know, deference to others. But at its root, pusillanimity comes into our lives when we are focusing on our own puny powers and resources and all the ways we could fail. And, and, and so we say no to God and what he wants to do in our lives and through our lives, in our churches and how we can participate in God's work in the world. The disciples are, are a classic textbook case of pusillanimity. They are looking at an overwhelming situation, an opportunity, 
and wanting to shut it down. Jesus says, you feed them and they want to shut it down. They send them away, wrap it up. Logistics are quickly approaching. The disciples had smallness of soul, which resulted in what? It resulted in them telling Jesus what to do. It's almost like an inversion. It's like, I'm going to be humble. I can't do it. I can't do it. So I'm going to tell God that I can't do it. <laughs> you know, now, now we're, tell, we're in our smallness of soul. We're telling God what is up. And on some level, you know, the disciples aren't wrong. Of course, in their own resources, they could not feed all these people. Uh, and we are great at making messes of our lives, <laughs> which is why there's grace. But if you have said yes to Jesus's revolution, then you are not on your own. You are joining his reality under the abundance of the God of the universe. You have the very spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwelling inside your body. So the antidote to pusillanimity is not to tell Jesus what to do, but to ask him, what should I do? I, I don't understand. I don't, I don't know. I, don't, I can't feed all these people, Jesus. I don't know how to do that. But we listen to him. We ask him questions. We pour out our hearts and we ask. At Jesus' transfiguration, the audible voice of God, the Father, rings out. And the one thing he chose to say at that incredible moment was, this is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. So maybe some of you here, some of us here are having things come to mind. The Holy Spirit's bringing things to mind, some opportunity that you, have, you feel called to step into and you're avoiding it, resisting it because of how it might hurt, how uncomfortable it might be, how it might hurt you financially or how it might require you to rest and not be so busy all the time or how you might have to say no to other activities in order to say yes to what God's calling you to do. Maybe you've heard the invitation for, for the fact that we need four more kids' church teachers in our kids' church ministry. And you thought, I can't do that. I'm, I'm too old. I don't know the Bible well enough. These kids are crazy. I don't have enough energy. What, whatever. You might have all kinds of reasons not to. Do you feel God calling you in to that? And as I was praying this morning over this text and over our church, I just got a, a picture of pruning. Johnny and I have sprouted an avocado tree. We just like out of the ones we got at the store. And it's taken months to get this thing to sprout and the roots to grow and all this stuff. And it, and it finally it got about maybe eight inches tall and it's got three leaves. Uh, but from my research and growing avocados, never done it before, it says it will quit growing unless you chop off three inches. And so Johnny and I got the scissors and we chopped off three inches, including those hard one, three leaves. Now it's just like an upright stick in our front window. Uh, pruning doesn't make sense. It's terrifying. Like, am I going to destroy this or whatever? And, and so I just want to put that out there. If, if it feels like a pruning is going on in your life or you feel called to prune something, cut something out, God's calling you to cut something out, that feels terrifying. That makes no sense. That makes you think you're going to lose everything that you might have had in the past. Uh, then I just want to invite you to take courage because we, we see in scripture that God prunes those he loves. God prunes those who are bearing fruit so they can bear more fruit. Stepping out and beginning to hand out the little loaves and fishes you have 
is how you experience the, the abundant power of Jesus. Giving it away, giving the little you have away is how you see God multiply and how you experience God's abundance. Now this revolution, <clears throat> this revolution of compassion and love is not without its decisive act of violence. Just like the beheading of the Marquis de Lunay, Jesus's revolution has a decisive act of violence. And Mark is actually setting us up for it very subtly in our text. Continue to be blown away by the literary genius of Mark. He says, uh, in back in verse 41, And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing, and broke the loaves, and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. Those two verbs, Jesus blessed and Jesus broke. Jesus blessed the loaves and broke the loaves is the, are the exact same words, the exact same language that Mark uses later on in his gospel uh, in chapter 14 at the Last Supper. Mark 14, 22, it says, as they were eating, he took the bread and after blessing it, he what? Broke it and he gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. Mark is already foreshadowing here in chapter six where the story is going. And right after that, we see the blood, which in the words of Thomas Jefferson, nourish the tree of liberty. It says, Jesus took the cup and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them and they drank of it. And he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. We see that Jesus's revolution is founded on and inspired by a decisive act of violence. Jesus on the cross, the ultimate tree of liberty of freedom is nourished by the blood of our King. But it's not a violence, a not violence done by the revolutionary leader or by the revolutionaries. It's a violence done to the revolutionary leader. Jesus's revolution of compassion is founded on his cross where his whole body was stuck on a pole and lifted into the air. And when Jesus was on the cross as his body was broken, what did he do? He blessed the very people who were killing him. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And then he broke, his body was broken, his blood was poured out for many. We're gonna do a special communion celebration together. And as we prepare to come forward, I just want us to behold our revolutionary King who shows his compassion towards us uh, in his cross, his compassion towards you in his broken body and shed blood, taking our place, letting himself be broken so that we could be made whole, so that we could be satisfied. Jesus' revolution will ultimately win the day because like other revolutions, that fight evil and oppression with more evil and oppression, Jesus absorbed all evil and oppression into his very body. All the evil that you've ever done, all the evil that has been done to you has been dealt with on the cross. So we see Jesus as our substitute and we see Jesus as our example that he set for us as his followers that we bless others around us by allowing ourselves to be broken. If Jesus was broken in compassion for others, if we follow him, we will be broken in compassion for others as well. Thank you for tuning in to the Carl Road Baptist Church podcast. We hope you found something that can be applied to your life today and into the future. 
You can always watch our past services or see them live on YouTube, Facebook, and our website at www.carlroadbaptist.org. That's Carl with a K A R L roadbaptist.org. If you search YouTube or Facebook, look for Carl Road Baptist Church, and don't forget to subscribe or follow us if you are watching via a service that allows that so you can stay up to date and notified when another episode is ready for you to watch or listen to. Thanks again for sharing your time with us and putting in the effort to maintain your relationship with God. Have a fantastic week, and we look forward to growing alongside you in the future with the next episode of the KRBC Podcast.